Trying to find 11 blokes for a cricket team right now on a Saturday in November in Wellington is proven to be very challenging. It's funny because for someone who plays so much team sport, you do not act like a team player around here. I mean, that is awful. That is awful. That is, I reject the premise of that assertion. Some of your other colleagues wouldn't. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget. When my eyebrow goes up, it's a joke. Police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Sip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Speaker, they say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome back to the Iron Duke Podcast, your weekly recap of all things policy and politics where we run you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits and anything that fits from Aotearoa and around the globe. I'm Maddie Burgess-Smith and with me is Principal Consultant Byron Terrace. Hello Maddie, it's wonderful to be here on another episode of the Iron Duke Podcast. This week we've got a little bit of a geopolitical roundup with the G20 having just happened, APEC just happened over in Bali, Indonesia, a little few meetings in Cambodia. We've also got a little bit going on in Ukraine as usual. Maddie, you're going to talk us through boot camps. And lastly, we're going to talk about nurses. Nurses and paying them more. Well, just paying them in general. Why don't I kick off with that? Yes, yeah, start so with the nurses. So, full disclosure last weekend, Byron and I facilitated a health summit at Parliament, courtesy of Minister Andrew Little's office. Now, the premise of the summit was to get together a whole bunch of frontline healthcare workers and talk about labour shortages, which is something that's plaguing the entire healthcare system at the moment. And whilst we were facilitating the summit, the same theme kept popping up. Nurses find it bloody hard to get through their 1,100 hours of hospital and clinical placement time for free. Now, I can't think of too many other occupations where we would ask that of people. And what would be really helpful is if we actually paid these people whilst they were doing this training. Because the amount of time they have to put in means very few of them can actually uphold a second job. So the following day, Minister Little heard that loud and clear and has said, you know what, we need to get on with paying these students for their time ASAP. The comparison was made during the day with, with police. You know, they got their mm. 16 weeks of training and they're paid for that time. Yeah, they are. Fens, firefighters, uh, the military, your your employment is tied to the public service. Your employment is tied to a, a job that is predominantly done by the public service. Yeah, and look, we do it for medical students when they're in their final years of placement. They get a stipend, stipend? Stipend, stipend, stipend? whichever way. Stipend, yeah. of around $27,000. Now, that's not a huge amount of money, but it's acknowledgement of the fact that without many of those student doctors, many of those hospitals would not run. Dr Shane Reddy has come out and said, well, maybe it could cause a spiral. What's next? Are we going to train mechanics? Do you know what? If there is anyone in a business providing you with free labour from which that business becomes more successful or from which there are greater outcomes for patients, then yeah, I think we should be paying them. Fair enough too. Open it up. Open it up. I'm going to start with my pit of the week. Uh, My pit is seriously what's going on around the globe right now. It's just kind of a bit of a grim time, really. You had the G20 summit in Indonesia and Bali which just wasn't a very pleasant time. You know, it was a very difficult time for geopolitics. You've got tensions between China and what looks like literally every other country in the world. You had Xi Jinping publicly dressing down Justin Trudeau in the kind of main area where they're just milling and mixing about, which was extraordinary. Through a translator. Through a translator. You had an extraordinary meeting of the G7 pulled together by Joe Biden to discuss a stray missile falling into Poland, courtesy of the Ukrainian air defense. The G7 being? The group of seven, which is the world's seven largest economies, excluding Russia because they 
can't come to our clubhouse meetings anymore because they're naughty, so oh, go away. Then you have the US midterms happening during this whole thing, right? CNN projects that Republicans will win control of the US House of Representatives. Thought we were going to do fine. While any seat lost is painful, Democrats had a strong night. One narrative so many were predicting did not happen. No Republican red tsunami or even red wave. I know. So you had the Republicans take the House, which is the lower house of the Congress, only just. Appointing your Chief Justice. Only by one. And you've got the Democrats just holding on to the Senate Senate. by, again, one. So you've got this knife edge in the states. You've got Donald Trump wading back in from Mar-a-Lago. I can't think of a worse place to announce. It just just looks tacky. It Mm. It looks rubbish. So he's waded into this. You've got the EU, you've got the UK, which are absolutely riddled by inflation and can't kind of get themselves out of it. And lo and behold... Little bit of a bright spark there, a little bit of a bright spark uh, out of all of this is Ukraine taking back the city of Kherson in the south. So that was that was good. You know, Slava Ukraina, well done to those guys fighting on the ground there. Some of the stuff in Europe at the moment is just unbelievable. So UK now formally in a recession. Jeremy Hunt, their finance minister, coming out, freezing tax brackets, bringing some stuff up and down, but also acknowledging you know, the energy price issue is going to continue. And one thing that's starting to get back onto everyone's lips is like, oh, what implication has Brexit had in all of this? However, closer to home... We've had some very interesting and, you know, quite competitive announcements from the opposition regarding law and order. We're going to create youth offender military academies. We want these academies to be for young offenders aged 15 to 17. Well, I think it's a sad situation if uh, your main argument for a policy is that it's at least a policy. It's dangerous, it's abhorrent and harmful. The 15 to 17 year olds, they're the ones at most danger of coming into our adult criminal justice system. So uh, Chris Luxon uh, the other day came out and announced that the National Party will support military-style boot camps for young offenders, a policy that uh, you know is a bit of grist to the mill for a centre-right, tough-on-crime party, a policy that has got a mixed history around the world. However, there are some kernels of good ideas that have happened in New Zealand. In the past, we tried military-style activity camps, which were essentially youth offenders. Average age of those youth offenders was about 16, generally young male offenders from the North Island would head down and they'd go to Burnham, Burnham Camp, and they would do a nine-week intense course with the military. By choice, right? Yeah, by choice. But your case officer kind of um, says you should probably do this rather than just going straight to prison, do not pass Mm -hmm. go. Most of these offenders had already had 30 offences under their belt. They were known to police from the age of 12 on average, so they had a pretty checkered past. So they were put into these MACs. Uh, 80 of them went through during the review period. A couple of challenges. The idea was to give them a sense of uh, teamwork, be able to work together, get them out of their communities, which obviously weren't working for them. And what ended up happening was you put them through 10 people at a time, put a little bit of wraparound care around them, and then eventually hand them back off to uh, community supervision. It sounds good on paper, had mixed reviews. 84% of those kids went on to reoffend. They also had very poor supervision outside of the program. So essentially the program, the nine weeks, residential in Burnham, worked a treat. But as soon as you let them back into the community under the care of probation services, 
you lost the connection. All the good work that you'd done during that camp. So do they gone. need to be in boot camp for life? No, you need to have wraparound service. And I'm going to talk about another military style program that is a huge successful program in New Zealand, has been going successfully for 29 years, that is limited service volunteers. Now I'm biased because I used to work for the New Zealand Defence Force in the Reserve Force and Youth Development Directorate, which looks after this program. And I saw this six-week volunteer program run in three locations change people's lives. So if you were sitting there on work and income, your case manager decided that, hey, this can give you confidence, give you a bit of resilience, and put you through something that 98% of people came out with a job in. LSV changes lives. It gives people a sense of purpose, teamwork, shows employers that these kids have a future. Now, there is a key purpose in this is that there is a lot of pastoral care. There's a lot of support from both MSD and the Defence Force given to these individuals, both during and afterwards. There's a huge follow-up program, which is something that Mac was missing, right? So you can find a middle ground here, which keeps kids out of the penal system, keeps kids out of going straight into prison. Because let's face it, New Zealand is going through an absolute crime wave right now. And if there's no, uh, if there's no alternative to going to prison, these kids are going to be buggered up for the rest of their life. So we need to find something that isn't prison, that keeps communities safe, gives the kids a sense of purpose, and quite frankly, whatever's working, whatever's going on right now ain't working because we're talking about this policy. And I agree with you there, but your LSV, it sounds like a bloody heat pump system, was directed at an entirely different demographic of people. It wasn't at young offenders, and it was people who chose to go there. Let's touch on the politics very briefly. This feels like it's out of a cereal box with not a lot of detail because I believe it's been whipped up to win a by-election in Hamilton West where there is a ram raid occurring every 12 hours and it is the hottest political topic in that electorate. I feel like this hasn't even chilled from the microwave since the last time that the Nats tried to deliver this under English. They've tried to deliver it under key. I believe that it is a slap in the face to experts, victims and young people everywhere by saying this is the solution to youth crime. We know that the reason people get into crime at a young age is because they are disenfranchised with the system. Same reason people join gangs, same reason people join terrorist groups, they want a sense of purpose and a sense of self-belonging because somewhere along the line our communities have failed them and our communities have failed them in areas of mental health, addiction support, providing them with safe reliable housing and most importantly giving Kiwi kids an inclusive education that allows them to achieve better outcomes. There is insufficient evidence to prove that this works and I pulled up a quote from Peter Gluckman who I know that you respect and he has said boot camps do not work and scared straight policies incentivize crime. Now a lot of politicians have come out and said we're just going to create tougher, fitter, faster criminals but what happens when these people aren't there voluntarily, they're pushed in there with a bunch of other young criminals, I feel like it is a petri dish of further harmful outcomes. I hear your points, we don't need to debate them, you've heard the kind of both sides of things. So up to you, listeners. Have a read. Go through. Have a look at the evidence. You know, read what Sir Peter Gluckman said about his studies. Go back and have a look about what different parties' policies are. Understand what's happened because this is an important debate for New Zealand right now. Law and order is a major, major, major challenge. There's so many complex drivers of crime. 
So this discussion is very important right I now. agree with you. It's a wicked problem that a lot of the other areas that the government is failing New Zealanders contributes into. And I just feel like getting Mark Mitchell up there, a guy who looks like he's permanently about to bop someone in the nose, to talk about a tough law and order stance without talking about the contributing drivers was a missed opportunity for the Nats to say, we are back and we are different. This is a rebrand. We are here for New Zealand communities. I think the um, the drivers uh, that we need to be worried about are the drivers of Toyota Aquas through the front doors of a liquor store. <laughs> That's the problem at the moment. Anyway, this week on the podcast, we're joined by President of Federated Farmers, Andrew Hoggard, to talk about farm emissions. Today, we're joined by Andrew Hoggard, Chair President. President. President of Federated Farmers, New Zealand's largest farming organisation. So, Andrew, thanks so much for hosting us today. Really appreciate it, mate. No problem. So tell Good us a here. little bit about you and a little bit about Feds. Um, so me, I'm what you'd call a three and a half generation farmer. Yep. Um, my great grandfather is actually a lawyer in Wellington who liked tramping and he was worried that he would lose access to the Tarara Forest Park and there was a farm up for sale at the base of it. So he bought it and ah. then uh, granddad went farming and dad went farming and I decided that no, I didn't want to farm on that place, and we moved up here. So that was back in 98. So originally, yeah, just north of Upper Hutt was where I came from. And, yeah, been up here since 98, and probably got involved with Federated Farmers as I was finishing up in Young Farmers. Yeah, cool. Um, needed something to do. Well, <laughs> I, I don't really... Yeah, looking back, no, I didn't need something to do, but I did it anyway. Yeah, the rest is sort of history, sort of moved my way up from the various ranks to where I am now, and yeah, in a year's time, um, who knows what I'll be doing. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and yeah, the organisation's been around for about 120 years, primarily an advocacy organisation that lobbies for change on behalf of farmers, but also over the years have done wherever there's been a need in the farming circle for things to happen, Federated Farmers has often been the vehicle that facilitates it. So the QE2 Trust, yep. that mm. came out of a Federated Farmers member, Gordon Stevenson. He proposed it in one of the National Council meetings. And if you go back through the history, there's various things that have started within Federated Farmers and then gone off to do their own thing effectively. Tell us a bit more about how the organisation operates. So you've got members everywhere. You are pretty loud, pretty vocal, and, and as of late there have been some huge issues. What is keeping farmers kind of awake at night? Well, emissions pricing obviously at the moment is yep. is definitely keeping me awake, um, and I imagine a few other members as well. Down south, they're very worried about the winter grazing rules mm. and the expectations around consents and all the rest of that. Other areas, the RMA reform changes, what do we call it, the central fresh water where they've got the wetland rules, uh, stock exclusion. There's just a whole range of regulation that's been thrown our way in the last three years and unfortunately a lot of mistakes in it and a lot of stuff that's just impractical to implement yep. and that is causing a massive amount of headaches. I mean, another one that's out there that probably many people haven't even heard of, the NPS for drinking water. So they've got a really smart thing around you know, where there's a water bore take, you know, you can't do certain things right around it, which makes sense. But then also there's the next zone where if you want to apply agrochemicals, then you've got to get a consent, and that consent may be up to $10,000. Consents are expensive. Yes. Right. None <laughs> and of so it's for people who don't like paperwork. Yeah. Assuming, right? And so that's um, and it's a 2.5K circle around that bore 
is where that's that massive. what yeah and so fielding's water take is one k that way so <laughs> so you're in it I'm in it you're but in also it. they say eight hours upstream of any water take then it's a hundred meters either side of the river you also can't apply so basically we've worked out that's the entire country um, <laughs> <laughs> where does this it, policy apply everywhere, everywhere. yeah and. The stupid thing of it, so if I have to apply to get a consent to spray weeds, that means that, yeah, I'm going to need to get a consent to spray my river boundary fence because down by the river there's always blackberry and stuff trying to overgrow it. And if I don't control that blackberry, (laughs) the fence loses power, it gets squashed, animals jump over it, end up in waterways. Yep. Is that the outcome we're after? No, it's no, not. It's not. It's exactly uh, the opposite of what we're after. <laughs> yeah. But the people drafting this aren't thinking about that, Andrew. So no. that's where your organisation <laughs> comes in, right? Yes, exactly. And it's just a, one example of how they just haven't thought through so many of these things around the practicality and what is actually the outcome on the ground that you want and is this the smartest way of getting it? So speaking about the first thing that's keeping you up at night, emissions pricing, we kind of... We've seen a lot in the news about, okay, we're going to charge on-farm prices this or this, and we've heard of Ewaka Ekanoa and the big part of that. So where do you stand on the government's recent announcements around ag emissions pricing? So we're very much opposed to them. (laughs) Simply, you know, they're talking about a potential 20% reduction in New Zealand sheep and beef production. You know, fundamentally that's just completely wrong when we go back to what the original purpose was, which was... You know, as industry, we agreed with government that would create a pricing mechanism which was going to be, you know, there to apply at the margin only to the extent necessary to incentivise the uptake of viable mitigations which reduce global emissions. And so what we're seeing here is the sheep and beef sector don't have that much in the way of mitigations. Um, there is some low methane sheep breeding out there, genetics, but that's going to take a while to spread through the national flock. You know, if we reduce sheep meat production here in New Zealand, the government's latest modelling shows that for every tonne reduction that occurs, we add 1.3 tonne of GHG globally. Ah. So That's an important point because yeah. what we're failing to recognise is that New Zealand already has some of the lowest Lord. emissions for yeah. its herd, right? Yeah. You were a party to Hawaka Ekanoa putting together that framework Look, what was it that you wanted to see? What I wanted to see way back when, when it all started, was a system that basically provided carrots and sticks. Mm. You know, we know that even without mitigations, there's still a bell curve or a spectrum of efficiency across our farms. Um, even though we're yeah, the most efficient in the world, we've still got a bell curve. Yeah. We're not all yeah, in a, one single spot. No. I always, in my mind, had system that would provide carrots to one end of the bell curve and there's the threat of the stick at the other end of the bell curve. All we seem to have arrived at is varying degrees of weight in a stick. Stick. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. They have come out with carrots in terms of being able to provide you with a reduction of your tax bill if you are using those mitigation technologies. But to your point, there just aren't a huge number of them available yet. Yeah, and that's still taking away part of the stick. So you're only getting beaten with a twig rather than a baseball bat sort of thing. To my mind, if you're doing all that you can, you shouldn't have anything impacting on you at all. You know, you shouldn't have to worry about any sort of price. In fact, maybe you should be able to claim a credit or something. In Canada, they're talking about where farmers implement new mitigations and the like that they actually get given carbon credits 
for those mitigations. So that they're not even talking about a price. It's just there's it's no just sticks the there. It's, it's just, just the carrot. The carrot. It's yeah, just the carrot at one end, right? Yeah, I, I still think you've got to have some motivation for the ones that are at the wrong end to mm-hmm. move forward. But that can be a push and a pull. I guess at the end of the day, there are a lot of companies in New Zealand that burn fossil fuels, right? So they use emissions to create profit. And in a lot of ways, farmers do similar. They have animals on their farm that create emissions, which then generates profit. Well, the argument is farmers have had a good ride for a long time. Do you agree with that? Not really, Uh, obviously. Uh, I mean, to me, if you look at the Paris Accord, it talks about food production and the need to maintain it whilst reducing emissions and to me that's always about a focus on improving efficiency so it doesn't mean let's reduce stuff let's stop doing things it's how can we do things better Mm. and that's where I think you know we need to be focusing on in New Zealand we're already very efficient you know there's technologies that may come about in other parts of the world that enable them to leapfrog us so we can't just sit back on our laurels and expect you know that using an all-black analogy that Richie McCall will always be with us and always Mm. at the top of his game uh, and will always win Um, you know as we know right now exactly (laughs) um, you've got to keep improving and you've got to keep developing new stuff and so that's where I think we should be focusing on the key thing gets lost a lot in the debate is the difference between the gases. CO2, nitrous oxide, they're long-lived gases. They accumulate in the atmosphere. Methane, short-lived. It's a flow gas. Methane comes out of animals, breaks down to CO2, goes back into the plants. Plants grow, animals eat plants, and the cycle goes around. Whereas with um, a lot of the world's methane, um, it's fossil fuel. Mm. So it's emitted from um, oil wells, mm. uh, yep. coal mines. That's new methane. That's been added to the atmosphere. Whereas, you know, what we're dealing with in the New Zealand agricultural scene is fairly static. It has been since 2006. We shouldn't be worried about the fact that agriculture makes up 48% of what our supposed emissions are in New Zealand. It's about what percentage of additional warming is agriculture adding. And when you've got static methane, that percentage is actually quite low. Quite low. And, and it makes sense because it's circular, right? And yeah. so it's burning out. So I suppose that brings us to the point of why it's so important to price methane separately to carbon because yeah. it is a short-lived gas. It's going back into the earth. What we're seeing is if they're priced incorrectly, the, the farmer has a huge incentive to price for carbon. And that's what we're seeing with afforestation. Yeah, and so I was at a meeting last night um, over in Mangaweka, and you know we've heard a lot about afforestation in the east coast. The farmers in the Rangitika are starting to worry as well. Mm. They're hearing stories of farms that are going up for sale there that are probably going to go into carbon forestry. Just a huge concern about the number of farms that are disappearing into carbon forestry. You know, our neighbour across the river who moved in last year, the sold up a farm, they were like the last in the valley over on the east coast that hadn't gone to carbon forestry. You know, community was dying around them. There was no mm. community. Where they were, if there was ever a fire, they were trapped. They were yeah, stuffed. That's scary uh, stuff. And wow. so that is a major concern amongst rural communities right now is how we've got these settings for the ETS driving this afforestation. And the way I look at it is, uh, it's really just an accounting solution. We count all this stuff up to 2050, yay, we've met our target, and then you go forward 10 years, and those trees stop under the system accumulating, and if we keep emitting all the CO2 and all the rest of it at the same rate, then either we've got to plant a whole lot more land, 
or we've finally got to you know, identify the elephant in the corner of the room, which is how do we reduce CO2? So you mentioned there's another couple of concerns. If there was emissions at the top here, what's a brief word on the second kind of level? I mean, we've heard SNAs, we've heard RMA oh. reform, we've heard fresh water. What's that second kind of big thing? It's probably the RMA reform. It, what changes there is going to flow down to all those other environmental areas as well. I mean, what we're seeing or worried about is having more of a draconian Got sort it. of system where there's all the rules and regulations. Waking and up as a box-ticking exercise. Yeah, pretty much. So that would probably be it. I think for most farmers, they're just over everything. Mm. Um, all the rules, all the noise, they just want to farm. Yeah. And I think that groundswell protest in the middle of the first one. The first uh, one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really showed that, yeah, everyone had just had enough of all the rules and feeling like everything was being forced upon them. And, it, yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really insightful interview and, yeah, you're doing great work for New Zealand's rural communities. As is tradition on the Iron Duke podcast, we always finish off with a quick hot or not. These are topical areas from the interview. If you like them, they're hot. If you don't, they're not. Byron, take us away. Our first one is uh, electric utes. Uh, not. <laughs> Second one is uh, Fonterra using biofuels in their tankers. Hot. Nice. And third one for me is uh, current labour shortages. Are they getting better, hot, or are they getting worse? Not. Not. Nice. People calling milks made of oat or almond milk. Uh, not. <laughs> oat juice. <laughs> the upcoming field days in Hamilton. Hot. Reindeer over Hilux. Uh, Hilux. Ooh, yes, fantastic. Go. Andrew, thanks so much for your time and hosting us uh, at your place. Really appreciate it. Uh, no worries. I look forward to seeing uh, you in the news and media more. <laughs> I look forward to getting out of it. <laughs> An insightful interview there with Andrew Hoggard on his dairy farm, in the, farm. in the Manawatu. I was looking out the window at some cows. It was fantastic. We also did last week's episode on um, the floor in Maddie's home, which was just special as well. <laughs> We're getting out and about, listeners. Make sure you do too. And until then, we'll, we'll see, see you, you next week. week.